0: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Collective Cafe, a virtual coffee experience which takes place every single Monday through Friday 8 to 9 a.m eastern standard time in both alpha collectives discord that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective and startup club's house In Clubhouse. It's free, it always will be free. There are no strings attached, there is no bait and switch. Lurk or listen only, chat with one another in our back chat or even come onto stage. The coffee shop is open for business. Whether you're on the treadmill, getting the kids ready for school, getting yourself ready for work, commuting into the big bad city, or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom to your home office. On Monday, we manifest. On Tuesday, we talk thought leadership. On wellness Wednesday, we discuss mental health, wellness, and life skills. On Thursday, we do live book reads and discussions with the author. And then on Friday, it's No Agenda Friday where there is no agenda. Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot, with virtual coffee, with the collective cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption, entrepreneurship or coaching. So give us a subscribe bit.ly forward slash collective cafe to go or a review on your favorite podcast platform if you're listening on demand or of course join us every day live. It is addictive and remember it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot. This is Alpha Collective's Collective Cafe. My name is Joseph Jaffe. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It is January 4th, 8.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, we are slowly but surely rebooting the Collective Cafe in 2024 uh, with probably uh, a couple of changes. I want to do some innovating. I think uh, I've established an amazing, I think, foundation now and momentum of... I would say best-in-class content. I'm certainly proud of the content. Uh, the audience is lagging, but we're going to focus on audience in 2024 and uh, and most likely going to start um, working uh, in Twitter spaces, X spaces. Um, it's uh, it's a necessary evil, but I think it's one that I have to take. Um, and And I will take it with a full heart, not a heavy heart. And so... Yeah, so I'm going to be growing this and uh, figuring out maybe a, a more um, an equitable rev share potentially uh, based on people that are able to help me grow this momentum and this media uh, platform because that's what it is really at the end of the day. Um, so I'm excited for that. Um, you know, I've been able to to grow myself to learn. Um, just shout-outs to Caleb, shout-outs to Chris right now in Twitter, on in Discord, and um, I certainly, it's a highlight of my day, uh, regardless of audience, but of course, the beauty of it is the ability to uh, still push this out as a podcast afterwards, and, and there is audience in the podcast, which has been great, um, so, you know, looks can be deceiving sometimes, and people that are now choosing to subscribe and download and uh, and listen to it on demand, um, are you know growing and that's and that's great. And if you think about it, um, you know, eight AM is not for everyone. You can never really please everyone all the time, can you? Uh, otherwise, you end up uh, pleasing uh, nobody. And uh, so there's that. And then I've also still been able to selectively produce uh, some really great LinkedIn and Substack summaries, articles, um, using the power of AI to help synthesize and summarize. Um, and um, and so the whole experience for me has been a really positive one. But 2024 is the year of audience. And um, and for people that are either um, here with me live today or listening on demand or will catch highlights via text, um, today we're going to go back to Sunil Uh, Gupta's uh, book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. And by the way, Sunil's brother is Sanjay Gupta. So they are uh, pretty famous Guptas, um, as Guptas go. Um, I've decided to um, move to chapter, or it's not chapter, it's called Step 5. And, uh, you know, a little bit of context, I think maybe... Would be important because if there are steps, uh, let me tell you what they are. Um, So step one is convince yourself first. Uh, Step two is cast central character. Um, We did um, number one, by the way, for um, a few weeks ago. Well, maybe a month ago. Step three is find an earned secret. Step four is make it feel inevitable. I almost did that chapter today. Um, But the one that I wanted to touch on was was step five Flip outsiders to insiders and so uh, let's let's get on with it. We've been told that creativity is a two-step formula, a great idea plus great execution, but there is a secret step in between. This is where you turn outsiders into insiders so that when your idea reaches the execution stage, you arrive together. Nearly every great movement, organization, and campaign can be traced back to the secret step. In the 1940s, instant cake mixes were unveiled at grocery stores across the United States with lots of marketing and hype. All you needed to prepare a tasty dessert was to add water, pour the batter in a pan and bake. It took less than half the time and effort to make a cake from scratch. So marketers were stunned to find that their product wasn't selling. It took a psychologist named Ernest Dichter, to figure out why, after cross-examining house homemakers across the country, Dicta came to a shocking conclusion: the mixers made the mixers made cooking too easy. They all but removed the consumer from the creative process. So manufacturers tried something new. They, I missed a Mr. Page. I was like. There we go. They removed the egg from the mix, requiring. That was like a bit of a, um, you know, a drum roll. They removed the egg from the mix, requiring you to crack and mix one in yourself. Sales took off. In the coming decades, researchers would see this pattern over and over again. Michael Norton from Harvard Business School, along with two colleagues, eventually named it the IKEA Effect and demonstrated that we place nearly five times more value on a product we helped build than on a product we simply buy. Time spent touching objects leads to feelings of ownership and value. Could a backer feel that sense of ownership for someone else's idea? At first, I didn't see the connection, which is why I'd walk into pictures trying my best to show I had a thorough plan with every major and minor detail figured out. I believed my ideas needed to be bulletproof in order to be backable. But as I continued to bring ideas to backers, I realized something. The more pinned down my plan, the less enthusiasm I was able to generate. My best pitches tended to be the ones with at least one open question, which I posed to the room. Those meetings would begin with the backers on the opposite side of the table and typically end with us huddled around my laptop or phone, working through something together. Through these experiences, I stumbled into a somewhat hidden lesson for being backable. We tend to fight the hardest for ideas for which we feel some sense of ownership. Why does that matter? Because even if a backer likes your idea, they almost always have to still convince someone else. If a venture capitalist likes your startup they will likely need to sell it to the rest of their partners. If the CEO of your company likes your idea for a new product, they still might need to share it with their board. If an editor likes your book concept, they still need to convince a committee to make an offer. That's why when we pitch, we're not looking for just a backer. We're looking for an advocate, someone who can represent your idea with the same enthusiasm as you. just put it into do not disturb if you're wondering Um, someone who can represent your idea with the same enthusiasm as you Salman Rushdie once wrote most of what matters in our lives takes place in our absence while we're present for the pitch we're most likely absent for the hallway huddles backroom meetings and email threads that decide the fate of our ideas backers become fierce advocates when they are on the inside of an idea They crack their own egg and add it to the mix. After wrapping up an Inconvenient Truth, documentary filmmaker Davis Guggenheim decided to shift his focus from climate change to a personal passion, the electric guitar. His idea was to create a film profiling the biggest guitarist of all time. At the very top of his wish list was perhaps the greatest of them all, Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. When Guggenheim ran the idea by his team, the consensus was universal. It will never happen. Bringing Jimmy Page into the film would have been a dream, Guggenheim told me, but none of us believed we could get him. He was too private. In fact, in Page's 50-plus-year career, he'd given only a handful of interviews, none of which were at the depth required for a feature-length documentary film. Guggenheim pressed on, eventually finding his way to Page's business manager, who confirmed everyone's doubts. When Guggenheim asked for an opportunity to personally share the idea with Page, the manager said, I'll give you an hour, not expecting that Guggenheim would take a 10-hour flight from Los Angeles to London for a short meeting, but Guggenheim booked one of the first flights he could find to Heathrow. He met Page in the lobby of a London hotel, where the two talked over English tea. From the moment they sat down, the pressure was on Guggenheim to convince the rock and roll icon to do something he'd never done before. Perhaps Page might have been expecting a hard sell, but it never came. Jimmy, I don't know what the what this film is going to be, but let's tell the story together. Why don't we start with a casual conversation? No cameras, just a microphone and no commitments. We'll just talk and see where it goes from there. At any minute, you can get up and leave. Guggenheim describes that moment as the turning point for the film. I get it, Page responded. It will be organic. Guggenheim and Page rented a a space at a small local hotel and ended up talking for three days. As promised, there was no agenda or camera crew, just two human beings openly sharing ideas, reflections, and anecdotes. What emerged was the start of a film called... It Might Get Loud, which was nominated for awards and hailed as a triumphant and truly absorbing 90-minute spectacle. For me, Guggenheim's story represented a career-defining lesson. Bring the people you are counting on into your creative process so that they feel like co-owners of your idea. Even if it feels uncomfortable, don't be afraid to let people put their fingerprints on your projects. Make them an insider and they'll feel invested in your success. Tommy Harper, who has produced big-budget films like Star Wars, The Force Awakens, put it to me like this. If they feel like it's their idea, then we all win. So I'm going to pause there um, just for a second, or page uh, 79, and uh, this chapter will go on to page 94. Um, so, we'll definitely get through it. I'm going to have a sip of coffee. If you have any thoughts or, or comments, uh, feel free to put them in the cafe chat or, or in the chat, um, echoing any quotes that you like. Um, if you're on Twitter, go ahead and, and make, uh, write a comment. Um, Caleb just said if they feel like it's their idea, then we all win. So powerful. Yeah, the reason I paused there as well was because it, it's kind of politics. It's political very much so, even you know when selling through to a client or or in business. And and the thing is it's it's looked at as a um as a negative. Right? It's like uh you know like you know this is the only way we can convince the big boss if uh, ultimately we have to Fool them into thinking it's their idea, because then they'll, you know, then they'll come up with it and they, you know, they'll take credit for it and blah blah blah. But the essence of it is actually a good thing. It's coming back to what we've just read, which is ownership. So I think it's less about make them feel like it's their idea, and more about make them feel like it's our idea. And um, you know, obviously, there's still going to be people. Who, uh, who are going to be political animals, um, who are only going to back an idea if they believe it's their own idea and that they came up with it. Uh, and so the game playing, unfortunately, is part of life. But in this particular case, the thought is um, to kind of, you know, I mean, there are two parts of it, right? One is this idea of it's the egg it's the egg phenomenon. You know, it's, it's the fact that, that together we can go far. Together, we can go further. Together, we can go far. And, and if I had to just, you know, even take it one step further, what I would say is, who's to say your idea is the best idea? Or, to put it differently, who's to say your idea couldn't be better with additional feedback? That's the thought here. That's the thought. As good and great as you are and as good and great as your idea is, perhaps it could be even better by inviting feedback and by working together. So I think it's a very powerful thought. Let's continue. Share what it could be, not how it has to be. Joel Stein is an author and former writer for Time magazine, Living in New York and Los Angeles, he eventually crossed into the entertainment scene and began to pitch ideas for television shows. Stein told me about the time he pitched CBS on a sitcom about a 35-year-old indie rock star and drug addict. Before Stein went into, the, his, went into his formal pitch, he and the executives made small talk about what inspired the idea. In a world where adults watch Disney movies and eat cupcakes, Stein said casually, recovering addicts are the only people who are trying to grow up. This sparked a lively discussion about our unpreparedness for true adulthood, giving Stein a perfect segue to his pitch, the story of his indie rock star addict. Moments after Stein left the meeting, before he even reached his car, He received a call letting him know that CBS wanted to buy the show. But there was a catch. They didn't want to buy my pitch, Stein told me. They wanted to buy everything I said before the pitch. As it turned out, CBS wasn't interested in the 35-year-old rock star uh, plot, but they were very interested in the angle of trying to grow up. They wanted to work with Stein on a different direction to take the same theme. So they bought the show without buying the plot he authored, for more money than Stein's annual salary at Time magazine. Had Stein gone straight into his formal pitch, the result might have been very different, but the pre-pitch discussion invited the executives into the creative process. And almost by accident, Stein learned one of the cardinal rules of backability. Share what it could be, but not exactly how it has to be. Like Stein, I stumbled into this lesson by accident. My interpretation of a backable idea had been a bulletproof plan with all the fine points figured out, but what I realized is that while it's important to have thought through all the details, you don't need to share them all in advance. Instead, share the high-level theme of what the idea could be, then pause and bring your backers into the discussion. A startup pitch deck typically has a backup section. By the way, I'm wondering what the show is. Um, I'm going to have to ask. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask Sunil what the show is. Uh, I'm like, do you know what the show is? If you do, just let me know. Um, a startup pitch deck typically has a backup section. These are slides that can be referenced after the initial pitch and during discussion. When I first started pitching rise, only 10% of my overall deck was in the backup section. After backable people helped me reshape my deck, after backable people helped me reshape my deck, over 50% of my deck was in the backup section. Instead of sharing all of the details up front, I'd share the high-level idea and vision, then open it up to discussion. As a result, each pitch began to feel less like a presentation and more like a collaboration. I love that quote. Make every pitch feel less like a presentation and more like a collaboration. I thought he was actually going to say more like a conversation, but it's actually both. It's like a conversation and a collaboration. This is how Steve Jobs recruited a marketing consultant named Regis McKenna to shape the original brand identity for Apple. By the way, Regis McKenna... uh, I you know one of the one of the most influential um, ideas for me in my entire career comes from Regis McKenna, who wrote a piece that actually said marketing is everything and everything is marketing. Um, Jobs loved the work McKenna did on the Intel ads and wanted him to work on his logo. The problem was that Apple was an unknown brand, and McKenna already had a stable of large, established clients. And yet, within five minutes of meeting Jobs, McKenna decided to work with Apple. Why? Because instead of boring McKenna with a detailed set of specifications, essentially telling him exactly what Apple was, Jobs spoke passionately about what the brand could be. And it was the what-is-possible talk that invited McKenna into the process, not as a contributor, but as a collaborator and an insider, As a result, he not only designed Apple's logo, but helped construct the company's first business plan. While writing this book, I was introduced to Jonathan Dotan, who isn't your typical Hollywood screenwriter. He was originally hired by the creators of HBO's Silicon Valley as a technical consultant to make sure the show remained credible to their early adopter audience, tech geeks who loved shows about tech geeks. During an episode, if even a single detail wasn't rooted in reality, it would lead to outrage on Reddit. On Reddit, Dotan, who had or Dotan, uh, who had a unique mix of technical design and film experience, was brought on to fact check and pressure test each plot point to ensure that it was technically rooted in reality. In the season one finale, the writers wanted their main character, Richard Hendricks. To come up with a programming breakthrough, something that made his startup's compression algorithm exponentially better than anyone's tail. A tall order for a tiny startup. Dotan, or Dotan's, I'm wondering if he's Israeli, because it sounds maybe like he is. Dotan's uh, job was to research and bring concepts into the writer's room, which can feel a lot like a backable WrestleMania. Ideas are being thrown out from different directions, most of which drop on the floor. The pace is fast, the wit is sharp, and the voices are loud. You're lucky to have the room's attention, let alone its enthusiasm. Dortan got to work on on researching compression engines and found something that surprised him. The algorithms that power a lot of the consumer technology we use today haven't significantly changed for decades. This was an interesting enough insight that Dotan could have attempted to formulate and steer the writers toward his own specific plotline. Instead, he simply shared his discovery. I didn't want to be prescriptive. I wanted to open up a conversation. Dautin late later told me, um, during the writers' meeting, he walked the room through the two existing types of compression, top-down and bottom-up, and then added there hasn't been any real advancement since the 1970s. That was enough to rev up the creative horsepower of Mike Judge and Alec Berg, the two head riders. After reflecting on Dottan's presentation, they said to him, you mentioned top-down and bottom-up. What about middle-out? Over the following weeks, Dottan and the riders collaborated on inventing and validating a brand new type of compression engine. Middle-out became the capstone plot, a point, for a show that won five Emmy nominations, earned the trust of a core audience of techies, and even inspired some viewers to build an actual startup based on the new compression engine. As for Dottani, he was able to play a key role in closing out a television season. He did so without ever trying to force his own idea. Had he burst into the room with a specific solution, the writers might never have arrived at the middle-out engine. Instead, he shared the high-level of what the idea could be, not how it had to be, so I'm going to pause there as well for a second, and again, invite anyone who wants to just comment on what they just heard, what they you know what they um, how they interpret that same in Twitter. you know I mean my takeaway from this as well is when we are brainstorming when we're coming up by, of uh, coming up with our own ideas we um we kind of guard them and we become very political and and we expect um and this is in a brainstorming environment, and you know what we should be doing is just recognizing that our ideas themselves are means to an end as opposed to an end unto itself so I'll repeat that. Our ideas are means to an end, instead of the end unto themselves. In other words, they are catalysts. They are sparks, and they and they move the whole conversation forward. And and I think you can only win in that environment if you are all um, vested or invested in that outcome, in that shared outcome, in that you know, in 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 the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because then, in a way, your idea is nothing more than an egg or flour or sugar or, you know, vanilla extract or whatever the case may be. And I think it's a powerful point that you realize that ideas and, and even going into a pitch environment that, you know, it is part of a recipe. It is an ingredient as opposed to, you know, the fully formed cake. So that's how I take kind of interpret that second part. Okay, the story of us. Most great political speeches include three stories, the story of me, the story of you, and most important, the story of us. What happens when we join forces and work together? John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech masterfully did this when he laid out a bold agenda and then challenged people everywhere to ask what together we can do for the freedom of man. I've discovered that founders often tell the story of me, occasionally tell the story of you, but almost never tell the story of us. They tend to miss the opportunity to tell a backer why she is a specific fit for the idea more than any other backer. When we miss this part of the story, we lose the chance to turn an outsider into an insider. I'll repeat that again. They tend to miss the opportunity to tell a backer why she is a specific fit for the idea more than any other backer. John Pelfrey is head of the MacArthur Foundation, which awards a $625,000 grant every year to 20 or so people who, among other qualities, display extraordinary originality and dedication in their creative pursuits. Over the past 40 years, the Genius Grant, as it's commonly referred to, has been given to people like Chim- uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Itachi, sorry, Adichie, Tim Berners-Lee, and Lynn manuel Miranda. I don't know the first person. I certainly do know who Tim Berners-Lee is and Lynn manuel Miranda. So I have to go and research who that, who that is. Maybe you can do that for me. Uh, Chimamanda, C-H-I-M-A-M-A-N-D-A. Ngozi, N-G-O-Z-I. That sounds like a South African name. And Adich, Adichie, A-D-I-C-H-I-E. So I was surprised when Pelfrey told me that if someone already had a clear path to success, that might make them a weaker candidate for the grant. He says a candidate is the strongest when they pass the but-for test. So I'm going to make a little note of that in the chat, trying to think of a good name for this episode. So it's either going to be called but-for or something to do with that egg so what is the but for test, you asked? We look to support someone where, but for our support, they wouldn't be able to accomplish their full p- potential, says Palfrey. So I'll read that again. We look to support someone where, in quotes, but for our support, they wouldn't be able to accomplish their full potential. We see the same filter used by other selective programs. Stanford's, Stanford University's Graduate School of Business receives thousands upon thousands of applications every year and accepts only a few hundred students. When I spoke to an admissions officer, he told me that most applications are simply a list of accomplishments, but the best applications show an intersection between your gaps and the program's strengths. In other words, they have a clear answer to how do Stanford's unique strengths play into where you need to grow. Interestingly, the same type of analysis is used by the Aspen Institute's Henry Crown Fellowship Program, which has awarded fellowships to people like Senator Cory Booker and Netflix CEO Reed Hastings. One of the criteria for the fellowship is that the candidates be at an inflection point in their career. They must not be fully baked. Backable people, by the way, I'm just realizing now that, that when, when you talk about the idea of backable... You know, maybe the maybe the question is not backable, but bakeable, right? From backable to bakeable. That might be another name as well. I'm making that note there, putting from backable to bakeable. I'm sure Sunil will love that thought. Backable people taught me that there are three steps to showing backers they are a pivotal part of your plan. Oh, that's very alliterative. First, identify a gap in your idea that relates directly to a strength in your backer. A gap could be anything from needing to figure out the right marketing strategy to hiring the right people. Months ago, a dermatologist approached me for fundraising advice so he could turn his one clinic into a chain. The biggest gap in his idea wasn't on the medical side, but on the retail side. Up until that point, he'd been approaching other physicians with a little success to invest in his service. We shifted his fundraising strategy and began to approach investors with a retail background. That allowed him to tell the story of us, his medical expertise plus their retail expertise. That was a winning combination they wanted to fund. Second, learn as much as possible before your meeting. Although you will be highlighting a gap, you still want to be able to engage your backer with the right questions and discussion. This takes preparation. In fact, I've learned it takes more preparation to create a discussion than to create a presentation. Another great quote. I've learned that it takes more preparation to create a discussion than to create a presentation. So, by the way, if you're, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that this is the second insight that talks about from a presentation to a conversation, to a collaboration, I'm sorry. And this is essentially saying from a presentation to a conversation, or in this case, a discussion. Had the dermatologist approached retail investors with something like, I don't understand retail, that would have been a turnoff. Instead, he spent weeks learning everything he could about retail strategy. He called friends with relevant backgrounds, attended an online retail seminar, and spoke to shop owners in his neighborhood. In the days before the meeting, he came up with thoughtful, opinion, uh, thoughtful options for a strategy. Again, he didn't shrug his shoulders and point to his own gap. He showed the work he'd already done in trying to figure it out and engaged the retail expert investor in a discussion. Finally, when you meet with your backer, be sure to direct, to directly express the story of us. Explain how your gap and their strength fit together to unlock your idea. Don't assume that they'll connect the dots. Even if they do, it's worth them knowing that you understand why you two fit well together. Let me say that again. Don't assume that they'll connect the dots, right? Because it says, explain how your gap and their strength fit together to unlock the idea. Even if they do, it's worth them knowing that you understand why you two fit well together. In emails to potential investors, This dermatologist would emphasize how your retail background and my clinical background would be a nice fit. Not only did that set the relationship up with a collaborative tone, it also showed investors that he had done his research and wasn't simply sending a template email to every investor he could find. Emily Weiss, creator of the beauty blog Into the Gloss, brought these steps together wisely when she was introduced to investor Kirsten Green, the Dollar Shave Club investor with the Midas touch we met earlier. Obviously, we skipped those uh, few chapters here. At the time, Into the Gloss had reached significant page views every month, and Weiss envisioned expanding the business in several ways, one of which included the potential for a physical product. She clearly understood how to build and retain a loyal following, but didn't know as much about how to build a product. Green, on the other hand, had a strong retail background and had backed consumer product companies like Birchbox, Warby Parker, and Serena and Lily. Weiss fused her gap and Green's strength and deftly told the story of us. Instead of preparing a formal pitch for green. She talked about what she observed from readers of Into the Gloss, what they craved and her various ideas on how she could deliver what they wanted. In her meeting with green, she laid out those options which immediately pulled the investor into the conversation about how they could build an online beauty brand. Often engaging discussion on the trade-offs of each, Weiss and Green decided the right initial go-to-market products were makeup and skincare. Today, Glossier valued at $1.2 billion, had, has added clothing, body care products, and fragrances to its lineup and has been called one of the most disruptive brands in beauty by Fortune. I just got goosebumps. didn't realize that actually uh, Into the Gloss uh, became, was the precursor to Glossier. Wow. Make them the hero. Years ago, I came across a designer named Michelle who was incredibly in demand within her company. People would fight to have her on their team. I later discovered that while people liked Michelle's creativity, they loved her process even more. Um, After sharing a set of design options, Michelle always gathered input from the room, Then in a follow-up meeting, she would go down the checklist of feedback item by item and show how she had incorporated their thoughts into the newest design. Or if she had decided not to use the feedback, she would share her reasons why. People didn't always agree with Michelle, but they always felt heard. Their input mattered, and they felt like insiders in her process. Recently, June Cohen said something that really made Michelle's story, uh, story click. Cohen, the former head of media for TED, and current CEO of Wait What, explained that in order to chart a truly epic career, you need to make everyone you enlist a hero, not just in your story, but in their own. In The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy enlists the help of the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion, by making them the hero of their own stories. Cohen says, if the Scarecrow didn't have a chance of getting a brain, if the Tin Man didn't, couldn't get a heart, they, would have bra- they wouldn't have braved those attacks from flying monkeys. To feel like heroes, we need to know what we said. We need to know that what we said and what we did made an impact. Penelope Burke is a renowned fundraising researcher who showed the difference it makes when we truly feel that way. More than 20 years ago, Burke noticed that nonprofit leaders were spending the majority of their time and resources recruiting new donors instead of keeping the ones they already had. As a result, nearly 70% of an average charity's backers would never give again, and nonprofit leaders would constantly be rebuilding their donor bases from scratch. It didn't make any sense, Burke told me. So she decided to study what would happen if a charity spent real time an effort cultivating existing donor relationships. In her experiment, Burke isolated a set of people who had given to a national health charity. If you were part of this test group, you received a personal phone call from a member of the board of directors. During this call, uh, uh, you were not asked for more money. This was a critical point. The call wasn't being used to sell you again, but rather to express sincere gratitude. You received a heartfelt thank you for your support. And you learned how your contribution was making a difference. After those phone calls were placed, Burke waited to see which donors stuck around. What she found was astounding. Two years later, 70% of the people who had received the phone call from a board member were still giving to the organization, compared to just 18% of those who hadn't. To top it off, donors who remained were now giving 42% more than they had at the start. I'm going to pause there uh, for a second as I finish my coffee. I mean, this is very, very consistent with with my book, Flip the Funnel. Um, It's very consistent with the, you know, I I flipped uh, AIDA, Awareness, Interest, Desire, Action, which is the traditional funnel, to the flipped funnel, which is ADEA, Acknowledgement, Dialogue, Incentivization, and Activation. And the A, Acknowledgement, is thank you. So this, this is applying there right now. Simple, you know, as I often say in my presentations, I say, what are the two most powerful words in the English language? And then my joke always is, in my household, it's I'm sorry. Um, but the words are thank you, expression of gratitude. And so here you actually see retention as, you know, not the new acquisition, but you certainly see retention leading to more business um, just based on nothing more then the two most powerful words, which again, um, are thank you. So I love love seeing that uh, manifest. All right, let's continue. When Burke shared those results with me, I asked her how one simple phone call could make such a huge difference. She answered my question in part by reading a thank you letter she happened to have sitting on her desk. It was written from one community organizer to another and the first paragraph began, we know it's often your role to do the work of making donors and volunteers feel like heroes and they no doubt are. Helping people understand their impact isn't a business concept. It's a human concept. We all want to feel as though what we said and what we did mattered. If you're a backer, That can be as simple as knowing your input was heard and utilized, whether that's for a mission or a strategy or a product. I got my first glimpse of this in politics. In high school, I knocked on doors for a local politician named John Dingle or Dingel, And I still remember the annoyed looks on people's faces when I'd ring their doorbells on a Sunday afternoon. By the tail end of the campaign, people's irritation grew because their homes had been visited multiple times by campaign workers who had handed them the same Piece of literature. If you give me one more of these pamphlets, I'm voting for the other guy, said one suburban dad. A decade later, when I was canvassing for another candidate, smartphones had changed everything. Before knocking on a door, I could pull up an app and know that the issues that mattered most to that voter because we had taken notes the last time we visited the home. I would say something like, from the last time we chatted, I know you care deeply about K-12 through education. Can I give you an update on some of the progress we're making on that front? As a result, there were fewer door slams and more quality conversations. Voters felt like they were being listened to, that that what they said mattered. We don't typically win people over in one conversation, but through a series of interactions that build trust and confidence... Oh, sorry. We don't typically win people over in one conversation, but through a series of 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 interactions that build trust and confidence. Even if the last conversation went poorly, you can use the next one to show that how they influenced to sh- you can use the next one to show them how they influenced your work. This type of follow-up is so powerful that it can often change a backer's response from no to yes. Brian Wood is an innovation strategist at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which is part of the US Department of Defense. He explained to me in layman's terms terms an internal project he created called conduit which used artificial intelligence to help the agency make better decisions more efficiently but when he pitched decision makers at the pentagon they rejected the idea expressing a laundry list of concerns instead of getting defensive you know like pun not intended uh, Wood listened carefully to the feedback he took detailed notes and created a checklist of things he needed to address before he returned then weeks later he scheduled a follow-up meeting. Just as Michelle, the designer, had done at a uh, high-tech company, Wood walked Pentagon officials through a modified version of his prototype, showing them exactly how their feedback had been incorporated. When Wood finished his demo, he saw a room filled with surprised faces. When he asked if everything was okay, one of the officers cleared his throat and said, everything's fine, it's just no one ever comes back. Unlike Wood, I never thought to go back to the investors who said no to Rise. That is, until I met an old friend from law school for coffee. Andy patiently listened to me complain about how everyone was passing on my idea. When I was finished, he leaned back in his chair and looked off into the distance for a moment. Then he asked a one-word question. Why? Why what? I asked. Why did they pass? He said. Because they didn't like the idea, I said, feeling a slight irritation. Yes, but why? Why didn't they like the idea, he pressed. At that moment, it occurred to me that I hadn't really asked investors who, who passed why they had passed. Typically, I had received a short email saying something like, sorry, it's just not the right fit for us. But I hadn't followed up and probed further into why. Later that day, I took Andy's advice and reached out to all the investors who had passed on Rise And ask them what it would have taken for them to say yes. A few of them responded with their version of nothing, just not the right fit for us. But others responded with substantive notes, offering feedback such as, we would have liked to have seen more numbers around retention, or we'd like to see the engineering team built out a little more so we know you can build a strong consumer product. Without asking the question, I would Never have received the feedback, and now that I had clear direction, I knew to adjust our roadmap to focus on customer retention and engage a recruiter to help us find engineering talent. About a month later, I emailed those same investors and asked if they'd be willing to take a quick follow-up meeting. I began each of those meetings by restating the concerns they shared, and as soon as that happened, I could feel the room relax. They knew in that moment that I wasn't going to waste their time regurgitating the, same, the exact same pitch. Then, like Brian Wood inside the Pentagon and Michelle inside her design room, I showed how I'd modified our approach using the input and the results we had so far. The new pitch didn't always work, but two venture capitalists who had previously told me no became early investors in Rise. Next section is called Share Just Enough. Google used to be the kind of place where you could come up with an idea on a lunch break and have it implemented before you left the office. But within a few short years, it outgrew itself multiple times and added layers of bureaucracy. Meeting rooms became packed with opinions and it began to feel like you couldn't swing a bat without hitting a, in quote, decision maker, end quote. In the midst of this cultural transition, Jake Knapp was pitching a new idea for a video chat interface. As a designer part of Knapps uh, its KNAPP part of Knapps job was to rally the growing number of decision makers around a single creative vision and unsurprisingly these meetings weren't going well. Knapp discussed the situation with his colleague Serge Lachapelle over lunch they reflected on how frictionless and simple these design conversations were when it was just their group. Knapp who got his degree in visual art, was always sketching on paper or a whiteboard, and everyone seemed to quickly get on the same page. That's when it struck La Chapelle. In, inside their small meetings, Knapp had been using low-fidelity drawings, but for meetings with the higher-ups, he always shared high-fidelity, higher-precision mock-ups. What would happen if they ditched their formal designs and presented these sketches instead? Knapp decided it was worth a shot. He drew his vision out on a piece of paper, recorded a series of videos of himself walking through his sketches, and shared those with the team. It, it worked. Knapp was used to receiving criticism, but now was receiving suggestions. I think that's a real important point here: is from you know from receiving criticism or concerns to now suggestions, um, and and that comes down to to how you know vested that other person is. Are they, you know, as the old saying goes, I mean, let's, let's, just, let's just mention this here. Um, this is me talking, not, not the book, right? Which is when you ask for money, you get advice. And when you ask for advice, you get money, right? Um, looking at the basic sketches, backers were using their imaginations and offering creative input. That feedback gave Knapp the springboard he needed to push the project forward and become a co-founder of Google Meet, which became one of the company's fastest growing products. When pitching a new concept, your idea can't be 100% defined, Knapp later told me. That means you need to create room for backers to be a part of it. Share just enough to spark their imagination, but not so much that you give them a reason to say no. I'll repeat that. Share just enough to spark their imagination, but not so much that you give them a reason to say no. Knapp, who's now a best-selling author, stumbled into a lesson that he'd used throughout his career just like Joel Stein inside the pitch room at CBS. Another Hollywood writer, Dekran uh, Ornikian, was used to being rejected for all sort of reasons, but he didn't expect this one. Madoff? Ornikian shouted into his phone. What could Bernie Madoff possibly have to do with an action thriller about a colony of werewolves? Just weeks earlier, the industry trade publication Variety had announced that his film Lobo had been fast-tracked into production. After years of grinding through a day job while writing on, on nights and weekends, Ornikian finally seemed to be on the path to success. The film was scheduled to shoot in Rio de Janeiro, and Ornikian was packing his bags when his manager called to deliver the terrible news. The financiers of the film had lost their money to Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Lobo's green light was now a hard red. Timing is a big part of being backable, and the timing for NIKIN couldn't have been worse. Sounds like, uh, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and crypto winter, doesn't it? The Great Recession of 2008 was in full effect and film financiers were running for the hills. Ornikian sat down with his writing partner, Ryland Grant, at a coffee shop in Santa Monica, took all their strength not to meet at a bar instead. With Lobo collecting dust on a shelf, they needed another idea that would make them money and time was of the essence. The economy might have been in a slump, but the rent wasn't getting any cheaper in Southern California. At the top of their list was an idea that had been talked about on and off for years. A master thief reluctantly agrees to teach a group of rough-and-tumble kids the true craft of taking down a score. It was part heist movie, part Karate Kid. They called it Thief Coach. As excited as they were about the idea, they wondered whether they should even give Thief Coach a try. Hollywood studios were already turning, turned, turning away from the original screenplays and towards established intellectual property. Worse, it would take Onikian and Grant six months to write a new screenplay, and they simply couldn't afford financially and mentally to invest the time again with zero return. During this period, the duo landed a meeting with Derek Haas, one of the top screenwriters in town and creator of the of the hit TV show Chicago Fire. He also ran a website, Popcorn Fiction, that was publishing short stories by screenwriters mostly big time screenwriters, but he liked the pitch for Thief Coach and encouraged them to try writing it as a short story instead. It sounded like the perfect way to give the idea a test run. They could knock out a 30 page short story version of Thief Coach a lot quicker than they could a 120 page screenplay. And while there was still no promise of a financial return, at least it would be published. At least it would exist in the real world, unlike Lobo and so many of uh, and so many other unmade scripts. Not long after Thief Coach was published on Popcorn Fiction, with little noise or fanfare, Ornikian was about to take his usual jog by the Pacific Ocean when he noticed a voicemail from his manager. There was a time he would have checked it immediately, but after years of bad news, he decided could wait until after his run. When Onikian finally listened, it was just gobbled and nonsensical. All he could make out was, Justin loves it. While the public reaction to Thief Coach was relatively muted, the short story had been, wait for it guys, here it comes, was relatively muted. The short story had been quietly circulating from desk to desk to influential producers and directors until it finally made its way to Justin Lin, director of several Fast and Furious movies. Lin loved the story so much that he immediately called a meeting. But in this meeting, Onikian and Grant didn't end up pitching Lynn as much as Lynn ended up pitching them. When Lynn read Thief Coach, it sparked his own idea for how the full Lynn story could unfold. And because the story was still high level, without the details of a fully baked screenplay, the door was open for real collaboration, and that excited Lynn. After years of struggling to get inside rooms like this, Onikian and Grant flipped one of, the Holly- of, of Hollywood's hottest directors into an insider. And that is the end of the chapter. I thought actually it became the basis for Fast and Furious. So now I've got to find out. All right. So we've got to find out. We've we got some research to do. Uh, Caleb says, What's the title of the book again? Today is quite timely. It's, today is quite timely. It's all quite timely. Thank you. I can't wait till next break. You know, I, me too. I mean, I'm, I, I found this to be very, very timely as well. Uh, what I'm trying to figure out is okay. Let's do let's do in our time. We've got seven minutes left. Let's do some research and find out. Uh or uh, and uh, what was it called? Thief, coach. What was the movie? I'm trying to work out. Uh yeah, it comes up. But what was the uh what was the actual movie? Uh, to catch a thief, send a thief. I'm trying to. F- so l- let's type. Um, uh, what was the full length movie that came out of Thief Coach? trying to figure it out he doesn't say well i'm gonna to have to ask the other one that i wanted to find out is well we know who it was it was uh, jeremy lynn so let's type uh let's type Jer- jeremy lynn and is it jeremy lynn justin Lynn. jeremy lynn is a basketball player that's what i was thinking Justin Lynn and then or Nikian. Let's see what comes up there. Hmm. I think um Ryland So it just says Ryland recently finished um Trying to work out what it was. maybe um maybe it's still happening. I said Ryland recently finished finished writing the filmic uh adaptation for Lynn to direct. So I'm kind of not sure what it was. The other thing that I wanted to check is earlier in the chapter, uh, I want to find out about that C V uh the CBS story. Um so let's find out who that was interesting how he uh, he doesn't reveal at all he kind of um he leaves you hanging doesn't he so let's see who was so this was stein what was his name uh joel stein uh cbs let's see uh joel stein cbs show uh i'm trying to find out as well Doesn't say as well. Um, Joel Stein's CBS show about growing up. Let's see if that if that registers anything. Well, I'm definitely. I have. um, I definitely have some uh, work to do in terms of finding out uh, what these two shows were. I'll put these when I find out the answers. I will let you know. But um, I hope you enjoyed. this I found it to be very timely as well. You know, I'm you know even have a meeting next week where I'm pitching, and and I think you know I think we always are pitching. We're always pitching, um, but this idea of of um, you know the story of us make them the hero, um, you know, not be fully baked. Um, I mean, it's it's just it really really does come um, at the perfect time, you know. Well, what I typically do, for example, is I'm either going to go in and be so kind of precious over my idea that doesn't, you know, allow... These are the two mistakes I can see myself making, I should say, where the backer doesn't feel like they're part an insider at all. Or sometimes, you know, in my effort to win them over, I maybe come across as, as not baked enough. You know, so I'll be like, everything's on the table, like everything is up for debate, you know, and 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 maybe in giving too many answers, you can do this, and 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 you can do anything and everything. That that's too much control. And so, my takeaway is it should be able to be very clear, which is this is what I do best, like nobody else. Um, but this is what you know. This is what you do best, you know, and what you do like nobody else. This is kind of where I can help you. This is where you can help me. Right? There is the the story again of the dermatologist, which is one plus one equals three. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about one plus one equals three. Um, it's um, it's smart money, right? It's it's why when you go on Shark Tank, you don't you know, it's not necessarily the best deal, right? You know, sometimes uh, you know you're going to be looking at, um, you know, for example, um, whether it's you know whether it's Damon John or Mark Cuban or Mr Wonderful or you know you're absolutely looking you know Barbara Corcoran whatever you're you're looking at at the shock that also has the experience in you know direct to consumer or retail or fashion or or shopping you know or franchising etc. and um, and I think being singular, and I also love the other point just to kind of mention as we wind down, is this concept about doing your homework. It doesn't just mean, well, I don't know, you know, like I don't know anything about retail. You know, it's being able to say, look, I've done my research and uh, my due diligence, which is why and how I came to you. Um, and, and this is kind of, you know, I think, I think I've come as far as I can, but I've gone, but I know enough to know. You know, I know enough to be dangerous and I know enough to know that, you know, kind of the right questions to ask. And that's the discussion. Remember that insight today as well. It takes far more work to prepare for a discussion than to prepare a presentation. So, have an amazing day. Uh, I will not be in the Collective Cafe tomorrow um, as I have a, an all-day coaching session. Um, so, um, all things being equal, I should be back on uh, Monday morning Um, Have an amazing uh, day today, a day tomorrow, weekend, and I will see you all very soon. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.